Luke chapter 15, probably not a surprise. I'm going to take the time to read the text because we're going to go through a good piece of it. I'm already going to tell you up front, I'm not sure we're going to make it through all that we have planned. Depends on whether my sons are long-winded or not. But we're going to do our best. I would love to have a Q&A at the end, but prophetically I don't see it. And he said, verse 11, Luke 15, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, not not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Two good books, if you want to have some insight a little bit more into this issue that we face and some of the things that go along with it that we won't cover tonight. One is by Russell Moore. It's called Storm-Tossed Family. And you'll find some good things in there that would be helpful to you. A second one, How to Bring Your Children to Christ and Keep Them There by Ray Comfort. Um, Russell Moore's book is a little bit longer And uh, Ray Comfort's a little shorter, but they're both valuable, and I would recommend them both to you. Let me say off the bat, I'm going to give you a little uh, disclaimer. I was taught in school that parables are not to uh, be bigger than they're supposed to be. In other words, 
everything in a parable is not to be taught uh, as truth or some main truth. There's a point to parables. And so I want to tell you up tonight, the main point of the parable that I just read to you is not family relationships. It's not directly about how to win your prodigals. It is a secondary application. And that's what we'll be doing tonight. We're going to take a story that Jesus told, and I'll tell you the real main context and purpose of it, but we're going to take it and make it an application to our topic tonight so, so you know all that. This is a parable that Jesus tells, and the context, you can read it for yourself, if you would, in chapter 15 and verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives and eats with them. Now watch, so he told them this parable. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, they are all three parables with the same ingredients to them because they tell in different ways the same message. Jesus is answering the accusation by religious leaders that if he really was the king and Messiah, who he says he was, he would not be eating with the quote-unquote riffraff of the day, sinners being not just a theological term that you send, by and large, used in these contexts and others, friend of tax collectors and sinners, sinners was a sociological term as well, meaning you are an outcast. You could be a sinner and be someone who had a handicap because they believed in having that deformity or whatever it was, you were cursed by God. So it's not just that you're a prostitute or a tax collector. There's a lot of people who fit in the sociological sinner category. And Jesus, watch what it says. He receives, it says, and eats with them. Now, listen, it's not just about having lunch with someone who's not really acceptable. That's not what he's saying. The word receive is a word often other places used, hospitality. He welcomes them is the idea of it. Jesus wasn't just receiving them into a place where they had lunch. He's looking for them. It is used six times in Luke, and every time it's translated eagerly waiting for them. So Jesus is... He's got his eye out for sinners and tax collectors. He is not passive in letting them come to him, although they did. He seeks them out. And that includes tax collectors and sinners, the ones that no one would passively accept, much less aggressively go after. Um, The scribes don't like it because their view of holiness and love are counter to what Jesus's is. And can I tell you, that's why we need his heart, because you won't be able to respond to your prodigal if you don't have the same heart that Jesus does. The rest of the chapter, i.e. the parable, and it's three different sections and forms, is basically Jesus welcoming sinners because he wants the Pharisees to know and you and I to know that he is the incarnation of God's loving pursuit of the lost. I say all that because It's crucial if you are going to evangelize prodigals that you see them as God and Jesus sees them and that you learn to love them like he did. And I can tell you up front, everything I'm saying tonight is not always natural. You don't always do it right. And I have found that it is a process to learn it and to live it. I read this week, Cook County, just a suburb outside of Chicago, Every month, every month, buries 20 to 30 people who they call unclaimed. Who are they? They are people who have no body. 
Nobody knows them. Nobody cares about them. Someone, most of the time, finds their dead bodies on a street, in a park, and in an alley. The medical examiner waits, keeps their bodies in holding until someone comes and claims them. But after time passes, these people have no one who comes to claim them. As a result, a 180-foot trench is dug every month in Chicago cemeteries. The bodies are put in a wooden coffin of minimal cost. They are put into the ground all side by side, all 30, 20 to 30 of them in a row. They have no stone to mark their grave. They have no marker to tell their name or anything about them. I read that article and I said, that's lostness. See, surrounded by millions of people in Chicago, millions, no one knows them, no one cares about them, and not a single person knows they've died. But there's something worse than that, and I want to tell you tonight, absolute lostness is not just being cut off from people, it's being cut off from God One author said this, it's better to die unknown by man than to die unknown by God. Prodigals are unknown by God. That's the bottom line. They don't know him. So tonight I want to go and start with a number of things. The first one being, what is a prodigal? Simply, it is anyone, not just your teenager at home, but anyone who is unsaved, running from God in rebellion, oftentimes actually leaving your house or the relationship that they have with you. There are two types of prodigals, and is basically the reason why I have Will and Lance here tonight. There are two prodigals in the story. It's not often told that way, but it is true. The first prodigal, the most famous one, is the boy who does it all on the outside and gets all of the, you know, everybody watching his life and all the terrible mistakes he does. But there are two prodigals. One who stays home and one who leaves home. And they are two kinds, and there you'll see tonight, and you'll hear testimonies. They are different, and in some ways, vastly different. And you may have, I had both in my home. You may have one or the other. It's important to decipher and somewhat distinguish which one they are, because you wouldn't address them equally. But I can tell you this, although there are vast differences, there's a lot of similarities inside this, that their heart is the problem in both cases. I call the one the expressive prodigal. And it fits perfectly, unfortunately, in my house, but the younger son was that. And my older son, BJ, Will, was the prodigal. He, I call him the secretive prodigal because it was mostly internalized. You wouldn't have picked up on it nearly as easy or at all, or to think it was as serious as it was, but it was. So let me say this, and then I'm going to have uh, Lance come in a moment. To reach prodigal children, you have to be a prodigal parent. I believe that. And that prodigal parent has to mirror the prodigal God that's mentioned in this story. You have to become, if not already working on it, almost a different kind of parent. It's going to take different abilities and wisdom and skill that perhaps you haven't had to use before, but you're going to need to do it. And before I tell you all those pieces, I've asked Lance to come and tell us tonight um, what it was like to be the externalized 
I should say, expressive um, prodigal son and what it did, what God did, and the phrase we're going to come to later, it says, when he, when he came to himself, or literally in the Greek, when he came to his senses, and what God used in his life to turn him around. You can grab that mic right there. Good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight, as my dad said, um, I just wanted to talk to you all a little bit about you know, my past experience with the expressive prodigalism and how God was able to remove me from my, my own sinful lifestyle. Um, my, my first real uh, experience or temptation with you know, rebellion um, came around the, the middle of high school, around my junior year. Um, this is when I started to be presented with more temptations like partying, drinking, and you know, all the things that come with that lifestyle of sin. Uh, once I started to continuously give in to those temptations that I was faced with, um, it actually did show me you know, through my high school, I realized that uh, I was not living for God and that I, I was truly lost. But even, even knowing that, I still chose to continue living that way anyways. Um, I started to surround myself by friends who endorsed all of my beliefs uh, they would tell me that the church and my whole family was crazy for not letting me do the, the things that I, I said made me happy. Um, they would uh, bring me to places that I knew I wasn't supposed to go and then make jokes about how, you know, these things are all fun, even though I knew they were wrong. Um, and while doing all this, I was full well knowing that uh, this was sinful, but if being a Christian meant that I had to give up all these things that I thought made me happy, then to me it wasn't worth it. And this sinful lifestyle that I developed through, through my high school actually continued in, on into, into college and even into my early 20s. Um, but over time, you know, as the years went on, eventually God was able to uh, start working in my life in a couple different ways. Um, first, when I was about 19 or 20, uh, I developed a chronic headache which made... Uh, very difficult to enjoy some of the, the sinful things I was indulging in, which frustrated me intensely. You know, going to parties was difficult. Drinking made my head hurt, a bunch of different things where I started to get frustrated not knowing what was happening. Um, I would also tell myself that uh, my parents and my church were, were all against me, even though at the same time I was experiencing grace and love from everybody who was around me. Uh, I even remember a time where I actually eventually moved out of my house and wasn't really speaking to my parents or my family at all anymore. And I remember a day at work where my dad just, he just sent me a text just telling me that he loved me and though even though we weren't talking, he was praying for me and other things like that. And I experienced those things while I was away from home. And through that time, God actually started to, to bring me low in my life. And eventually I got to a low enough place where I started to question what I was doing in my life and what I was doing with God. Um, and he eventually reminded me where the only true place I could find my joy was, as I, I wasn't finding it in my sin at all. Um, through that time, I actually started to go back and to read the Word a little bit. I found my Bible. I, I started to pray and, and ask God what I was doing, even though I, I knew all these years I was living in sin and that I was lost. But I started questioning it again, talking to God more. And through that time, He um, brought me to the place where I knew I needed forgiveness and I knew I needed a changed heart. And I also knew that I could, I could receive this from both my Heavenly Father and I could receive it from my Earthly Father. And I did. 
I, I was able to, I remember the day I, I went home after about six, seven months from, from living away, and I asked for forgiveness from my dad, from my family, and it was very strange. It was like with, within one day, it was like nothing had ever happened. It was, it was back to normal, like, like I had never left, like nothing ever happened. It was, it was crazy how my, my family was so quick to forgive me, and God was changing me, and, and it seemed like so fast in and, and the way that worked out in my life. Um, and, and just as I was, you know, looking over my, my testimony and my life, um, I, would, I would recommend to any, any parents here who have prodigal-like children that you, you never give up hope on, on any of them and that you make sure that they will always know that they can come to you at any time for that forgiveness and help. Because if you're not approachable, then they may never come to you when they truly need your help or your forgiveness. Um, but, you know, if you keep that door open for them, then they'll always have the place to come back for when they need help and forgiveness. Three things, if you want to write them down tonight, I think that if I had these separated into categories... I would have them before leaving home, after leaving home, when they come home. Those are three slides I have. Um, Prodigal parents, what do they need to be like? First thing I would say, if you're writing it down, anticipation. I love the verses in chapter 15, verses 20 through 24. When the prodigal son comes home, it, it says that when his son was yet a long way off. It's the Greek word we get macro from. He wasn't a micro distance, just a street down the road. Macro means perhaps the father was out in front of the house and at the end or the edge of town or beyond, he could see someone in the distance, seemingly could see enough to make out. Now again, his son isn't, doesn't look anything like he did when he left. He's lost everything. Um, But it tells me this, that the whole time his prodigal son was gone, we don't know how long, seeing him again was something that he had already thought about in his mind. Seemingly, it seems like it was the practice of the prodigal son's father to wait and see if today would be the day that he would come home. I don't think it was an accident that he was out there. The text indicates that he had almost seemingly made it a habit. And when he saw him... It didn't say he saw him and was angry. How dare he come back after all he's done? That's not what it says. He saw him and was bitter. No. He saw him and was unforgiving. Not any of those things. Saw him and felt compassion is what it says. Interestingly enough, it is the same verb, splagnoi, which means your inners, like back they would say your bowels, because it wasn't an intellectual love as much as it was as well that is that, but it was a moved him kind of love. It's the same word used in Luke 10, 33. It says about how the priest and the, and the Levite all passed the guy dead, half dead on the road, and it says they saw him and went on their way. But the Samaritan comes, the guy that's never supposed to be the hero in a Jewish story of all things, comes by and sees him, and unlike the other ones, he's moved with compassion. It's that verb that he sees him, 
The Samaritan, not even knowing him, loves him. How much better is the story with Jesus and the Father in this story, God himself, knowing us, knowing what we've done and all the things that we've been waiting for. He's been anticipating. I can tell you, Chris and I anticipated for years that Lance would get saved and be right with God. Anticipated. That's why I text him at times and Chris would do things for him and we'd always tell him, the rules when you come home have not changed. To live here, you will abide by them now that you're over 18. But the door is open to come back and to obey and to follow them. I told Lance, I said, you may not be saved, but you'll still go to church in my house. And that was the rules. And so when he didn't buy the rules anymore, then he was no longer welcome to live in our home. And that's the road we took. And it was difficult at times. But anticipating it wasn't. Anticipating what God could do and change his life. So I tell you how important that is because you're doing that when there is no change. You're doing that when your son hasn't come. You're doing that after you've stood on the front of your lawn looking down the road and there's nothing there for long, long periods of time. But you keep it up anyways out of love and here's what it leads to. It leads to action. So the day that his son actually appears, here's what he does. Listen to the verbs. He runs, he embraces, he kisses, his son. He runs, embraces, and kisses. Let me tell you real quickly, background. Older men in Jewish culture who have money like this guy does, we'd say today, they don't run in public. To run, you had to pick up your long robes like this and gird your loins, and it was embarrassing and shameful in a social culture that you would run down the street and meet him at the edge of town. It was embarrassment to it. The father did not care. He didn't care. He didn't care at that point when anybody saw it with him. And there's also a belief that if the son came in without the father, that they would stone him for what he had done because it doesn't just affect your family, it affected their community. And they wouldn't have that returned prodigal being the same kind of kid in their community to spoil their children. They wouldn't have any part of it. So some believe that he ran out there and didn't care about what other people say, but in another sense he did care what they thought because he didn't want to jeopardize his son's life. But it turned into action, see, action. The word embrace, listen to this. I want you to know this is what moved with compassion looks like. It says he embraced him. The word means to fall on or throw yourself on someone. This was not like a little kiss and an embrace. I mean, almost like the prodigal son's dad has tackled him in the middle of the street. This is one of those embraces that you can't, he doesn't let go for a while. And that his sobbing probably starts before his son can hardly say anything. Notice, notice this. And this got me so many times. Notice the running, the embracing, and the kissing is before his prodigal son ever said a word. He doesn't really know why he's coming home. If he just wants something practical from him. Can you give me a job? I don't have anything to eat. Blah, blah, blah. But is he going to ask forgiveness? He doesn't know any of that, but he loves him and embraces him and kisses him anyways. He does. It's amazing. Verse 19 says, I'm sorry, uh, he also says a few, uh, next verse, that after he gets done this, and, and, and it's interesting, isn't it? The prodigal son says, I'm no, he, he's got a rehearsed statement. And he says, hey, by the way, I 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against heaven and you. And he gets the words out of his mouth, and it's almost as if his son had never said them because he completely ignores them. <laughs> he doesn't respond to it. Instead, he turns to his servants and he says, hey, go get, listen to this, go get the robe, the ring, the shoes, the fatted calf, it's going to celebrate. He didn't hear anything. He didn't take time to discern whether his son was sincere or not, whether he was manipulating it. He never gave it a thought. He took him, he gave him the robe, and by the way, you know from Joseph, when your dad gives you the robe, it's giving you high class authority. He gives him the ring, and the ring is not just, hey, isn't that a nice ring? The ring is you can use, you have the authority to do business with the father's money. <laughs> After the guy who just wasted everything. Shoes on your feet. Shoes were only worn by sons, not slaves. The guy comes back and says, I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me a servant. And the, all the terms servant in this text are doulas, slave. Make me a slave. I don't have any rights. You can do whatever what you want with me. If I just have a place to stay and have something to eat. He says, you're not a slave. You are my son. Here's the shoes to prove it. Fatted calf. You know this is a culture unlike ours. They didn't eat meat regularly. You had to be rich. Luke 16, one chapter. He fared sumptuously every day, which means probably he had meat all the time. Most people rarely had meat, only special celebrations, weddings, other things like that. This guy says the fatted calf is the one they've been holding off to use for the biggest celebration they could think of. The father says, I can't think of anything bigger than this. Do you see how he's acting and how he's anticipated? He didn't want his son to be a slave. He wasn't going to make him pay it back. Now again, are you going to do all these things to your prodigal if they come home? Probably not. But I think more than actual actions per se that you mimic, because the text doesn't end with and go and imitate Jesus and go and do likewise, but it does say this is the kind of heart that you should have. And it was not easy at times to do it, I can tell you. You have to work at it. It's, it's not very nice to say about myself or anyone else, but we do. You have to. It, it can be very frustrating. And by the way, it's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be upset at times. And anger is not always sinful and wrong. And there are times when we did it and it was justified and it was right. And I hope that we handled it. I think that we did. All of those things are okay along the way as well. Lastly, our time left, there are two sons. And the one who stayed home was just as rebellious and just as self-righteous and selfish in his heart as the first son, although you wouldn't have noticed it or known it as easily or readily as it was. Will never partied, drank, none of those things. Right? <laughs> but I can tell you this. He was just as lost. His heart was just as cold as a stone. And I can tell you with joy in my heart, which I re almost regularly to the Lord say, um, the desires are different, way different. My children aren't perfect just like their dad isn't. Um, but I can tell a huge difference in their lives. And I want to have Will come and share you how that happened to him by God's grace. Again, the mic is right there.
So, uh, most of you know I'm a bit different than my brother. Um, like my dad said, I didn't go out and do all the outward things like drinking and partying and, you know, things like that, but I was still equally lost. Um, I came to church, you know, I was involved in ministries, I went to youth group, choir, you know, nursery, Awana, all types of things. Um, but in my heart and outside of church, my sin was killing me. And I, at the time, I didn't know what to do about it. Um, so there are a number of things uh, that I went through, and my parents were able to easily pick up on it. And uh, if you have someone in your life that struggles the way I did, they might not be saved either. Um, so what do they spend the most time on, and how much time do they spend doing it? So for me, um, I spent too much of my free time on things that didn't matter, mostly video games. It was huge. Um, I would isolate myself in my room uh, every day after work or school, and uh, I wouldn't really come out except for dinner and you know, occasional movie or something, but I just completely separated myself from everyone and didn't really do much else. Um, and it was an idol, huge, huge idol. Um, and you might know someone that doesn't struggle like that. Maybe they, you know, have a different addiction or struggle or something. It might even be something that's not inherently wrong, you know. Uh, but if it's an idol, if it takes the place of God, then that could be a sign that they're not saved. Um, Another big thing I struggled with for a good amount of time in my 20s was anxiety. Um, and it was debilitating for me. For me, it was affecting me on a physical level. Um, I would have panic attacks on a regular basis. Uh, it kept me from doing normal, everyday things. I, I was out of work for like two weeks straight. Um, and after that, you know, just I couldn't function well you know, with other people, with my friends, and, you know, things like that. Um, you know, I wasn't casting my cares on God, you know, at all. You know, I was so worried that if I died, I was going to go to hell. And that's actually something my dad said straight to my face. He said, the reason you struggle with anxiety so much is because that you know in your heart that if you were to die today, you'd go straight to hell, you know. And he was right. You know, I said, you're right, you know, but at the time, I, I thought I was too far gone, too lost. There was nothing I could do about it, you know, so if you know someone like that, you know, if little things, you know, or lots of things make them anxious all the time, that's, that could be a sign of uh, a lack of faith. Um, do they have a time throughout the day where they are in the word, they're learning about who God is, they're praying? I wasn't doing any of that, zero. I had zero interest in the things of God, um, even though I played a good part when I was here. You know, at church, people saw me as a good Christian, but no interest at all. I basically came to church and got involved in ministry to make my dad look good. Like, I didn't want to disappoint him. I didn't, you know, people knew who I was being a pastor's kid, so I had a, a, a fake faith just, you know, so he wouldn't look bad.
but it was never really mine. Um, how often do you think about or do things for others? That was in my life to a degree, but it wasn't, it wasn't real. It was, I did it to make myself look good, not because God was worthy of being served or, or, or because I really cared about other people. Um, and those who think that way, <laughs> they're not serving God and they don't have a, a real desire for the things of God. Um, and how much do you, or how much do they let, uh, the world dictate their actions? Um, I didn't have social media, not like, you know, people do today, but I cared more about what other people thought, uh, more than what my family thought, more than what God thought. Um, I know today it's a lot easier for people, especially teenagers to, um, you know, let, social media and their friends dictate, you know, the things that they do. Um, and this is just uh, a few of the things uh, that I struggle with. Um, but what kept me, or what eventually, you know, turned me around was my family's unconditional love. They loved me no matter what. And they never, ever gave up. You know, i don't know how many times my dad talked with me, probably a hundred or more, you know, my mom as well. And when my brother got saved for a year, you know, he kept talking to me over and over again. And they prayed for me nonstop. I, 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 I knew that they loved me, but at the same time, I was so lost and so selfish in my thinking that I didn't think that they loved me. Uh, I didn't think that God loved me. You know, I pretty much hated myself. I thought of suicide at one point. Um, never actually tried, but thought about it. Um, but, yeah, you, you, this is like my brother said earlier. You can't give up on those that, you know, are lost, especially loved ones in your life. Um, if you have a, a kid or uh, another family member, you know, a spouse that is running from God, you know, you can't ever give up on them. You know, talk to them as much as it takes, even though sometimes what you say, you know it's going to hurt them. You know, it's, it's something they need to hear. And, you know, as many times as they may reject it, just keep on talking, keep on talking. And I think, you know, some some other things you can do is, you know, spend time with that person. Get them out of the house. Get them out of any isolation that they may have uh, or put themselves in. You know, get them to do things for other people. You know, they might not want to. They might not, you know, like it right away, you know, but the more they do it, you know, things of that nature, you know, get involved in ministry. Um, over time, if God wills it, he will work on their life. Um, and lastly, Definitely one of the most important things you can do is just pray, pray for them nonstop. You know, it's like my dad said, he, he had two prodigal kids, you know, living at home, and he prayed for us constantly, you know, not just in the morning when we woke up, but throughout the day, at night, you know, after we would talk, <laughs> you know, or have a, a conversation about how I need to change, he would, he would pray for me. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's about it.
the uh, prodigal son, the last one, showed where he really was in different ways. Let me give you some added things and we'll close in five minutes. When the younger son came home, 1528 says the older son, when he heard what was happening and all that his dad was doing for him, he got angry and refused to go in. You'll see in the story that the dad goes out to where the prodigal sons both are. He goes out to meet the younger one. The older one won't come in. He goes out to talk to him too. That was impressive to me when I read it, that he was willing to go and meet. He did not meet them halfway. Get in this house. I'm going to talk to you. He went out and saw them where they were. Both of them in different ways. He had to go out to them in different reasons, but he did. And you can see... I could see Will's heart as prodigal like the father does. And, I, and here's how you do it. You listen to what they say. This son says to his dad, all of these years I have served you. And it's the word slave. He saw living at home with his dad as a form of slavery. See, he knew, see the first son was a rule breaker. This prodigal son was a rule keeper. They come in two forms. Will was a rule keeper and did all the things that everybody would be happy for their sons to do, and he didn't do the bad things that you wouldn't want your children to do. But in his heart, he was slaving for it because he was still slave to his sin. He wasn't a believer. And he said, and you say things a little far-fetched, and you know that you're covering for something when you hear your child say, I've never disobeyed what you command. A command. That's how he saw them. You, and then he says this, you never, I never did this and you never did that. See, I didn't do anything wrong and you never gave me a party. Do you see where he's at? He doesn't love the father for who he is. There's not a lot of respect there. You know what it is? It's I'm doing all of this so I can get something. <laughs> you should be giving me things. Those are all indications when you see someone's language, which tells you their motivation, you should start realizing the depth of the problem that they have on the inside. The dad says this to him. He says, and by the way, did you see how the prodigal son number two talked about the prodigal son number one? He says, your son. He didn't say my brother because he wasn't interested in having him as a brother anymore. He's the mirror opposite of the father. And that's what will, you can think that you love people until someone crosses you. And I could see that, that what Will was doing in serving and loving wasn't real from a heart that loved God or people. It wasn't. And that's the case with this guy, this son of yours, not my brother. He was missing joy. Lance didn't have joy in his sin. Will didn't have joy in his sin. And his dad said it was fitting that we would be glad. It was fitting every single time in Luke and throughout the whole New Testament almost. The word used for fitting is the word must. His was, here's what his dad said. It was, we must have a party. We have to. Because here's what his situation was. He was, and this is a parallel statement, lost and found, dead and alive are identical. Let me tell you a last thing. Your prodigal friend, child, sibling, mate, spouse, whatever you want to say, they are not just lost, they are dead. And that's why I told Will, 
and I wasn't afraid to say it, you are going to die and go to hell. You know why? He was dead. Dead inside. Lance was dead. He was, they just expressed it differently. That's all it was. And after time, it was obvious. My sons came to me numerous times. Dad, do you think I'm saved? I said, I'm not God. But if you're asking my opinion, absolutely not. You can't have no desire for God. And I don't care what your profession has been. Can I tell you this? Those are hard things to come to as a parent. But you must if you're ever going to see change. You have to come to the reality. There's a reason there's no gladness. There is no joy. There's no love in God and the Bible and serving others. None of that's real because their faith isn't. And that was the changing point for both my sons. And all these years later, I can tell you all those things that I saw that were so wrong have now been changed. Growing, yes. Progress needed, yes, for all of us. But you can learn a lot from our experiences and this prodigal story. And I hope that this ever happens in your life or you know someone it is that you'll be able to give them a little bit of insight on how they can be helped as well. Let's close in prayer. Ah, Father, thank you. Help us as parents, like you humbled me. Help me to be able to help others that we might humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that you might help us in time of need. Oh, Lord, we all don't have it together. We really don't. Oh, we think we do, and we like to even pretend in front of others that we do, but we don't. And we need to come to that realization. Help us to help each other, to love each other, to be there for each other. And help us to have your heart, O oh Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.